modern Western civilization is probably the most technologically and socially complex uh, society that has ever existed. This was built up over the course of several generations uh, who, uh, with access to a lot of cheap energy, um, were able to build systems upon systems that have resulted in the push-button society that we have now. In order to get almost anything done in our world, we rely on, an, on a long chain of things working more or less perfectly. And as we've been seeing recently, this is starting to break down. We're starting to have supply chain problems. Uh, everything is getting less efficient. Accidents are becoming far more common. Infrastructure is collapsing. And there are good reasons to think that this is only going to continue. Now, some people... Uh, Sounds like John we may have lost him. You there, John? Calling Mars. Uh, well, sounds like what John was saying is the thing. Oh, they're back. Complex yeah. systems won't survive yeah. the competence crisis. My real field of passion is history, specifically like ancient history. It's going to be bad when the shit finally hits the fan with the modern technological world because we've lost a lot of the basic skills that we used for the rest of recorded history. Do you know, I mean, it's like we've it's going to be bad because like we no longer really we've lost the knowledge of how to fix clothes. You know, I mean, how to how to farm without fer chemical fertilizers. It's, I mean, when it goes down, we've got a technological world, but we, there's really no plan B. So I'm thinking that's, you know, that's what I'm, I'm looking at is like, it's when it happens, it's going to be bad. It's not going to be mad max, but I mean, we're, I'd say two or three generations out from something on the size of the late Bronze Age collapse or the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Yeah, well, you look at the Great Depression. I mean, the way America weathered that, when that happened, most of the country is still rural, living on farms or in small communities where you know, a lot of people worked on agriculture. So. Is that angle people are more the communities at that time more close-knit because they're smaller more rural people knew each other looked out for each other the basic moral character of folks of people that would just say no you shouldn't do you shouldn't do something like uh you know stealing from your neighbor because that's even if you can get away with it that's just wrong to do you know whereas now uh you know increasingly atomized society more urban more you know concentrated populations away from farms what like three percent of the population is involved in agriculture or something less than that even you know so we've moved on to factory farming and that's really you know factory farming can produce a whole lot of food but when that factory farming system breaks down what's going to be in place to replace it and i don't really see anything nor do i really see any kind of serious planning for it We'll just yeah. grow tomatoes in our backyards. It's fine. Get some chickens. I'm, I'm only sort of partially joking, but um, yeah. I mean, we've seen that kind of reversion to small scale subsistence agriculture out of, you know, for instance, large latifundia in the case of Rome in the past. Right. I think what makes the 
contemporary um, situation quite unique is that I, at least I'm not aware of any case where a society set about deliberately dismantling itself from the top down by deliberately promoting people into various positions on um, the basis of, of, of not being competent effectively, which is kind of almost what affirmative action comes down to. Um, it's, uh, I mean, we, we've had elites that were not selected on the basis of competence, um, at least uh, not explicitly, so like hereditary nobilities, for example. Um, but this is something I think very new. And it's also, I think what makes it dangerous is that we have this much higher level of sociological complexity than we had before. And it presupposes the involvement of highly competent people managing and maintaining all of these systems with an incredible amount of subject matter expertise, problem solving ability, um, you know, critical thinking ability, uh, creative thought, all of these things are assumed. And those people are being systematically removed from the system in favor of sort of affirmative action hires, diversity hires, and so on. Uh, and the people who are there now cannot maintain them. And we're starting we've to got a sclerotic bureaucracy. I mean, we've got a bureaucracy full of our our armies ha haven't fought a major world war scale war. I mean, there's nobody alive in the military right now who has any real experience with what would happen if, say, we wind up in land war in Europe. Our bureaucracies are we have people that are educated that really don't know anything about the systems they're supposed to be running. You know, well, you have a degree in management. That's great. How much do you know about making socks? You know, how much do you know about the companies you're managing other than how to get, you know, how to squeeze money out of them? It's I think that's one of our problems is I I, I haven't seen a bureaucracy this incompetent since like late stage Rome. Yeah, to, and to kind of pull pull everything together so that we can go forward because John cut out. Uh, we are focusing our discussion today on this piece that Harold Robertson wrote um, entitled "Complex Systems Won't Survive the Competence Crisis." And so, um, like John mentioned, he was talking a lot about uh, affirmative action in the Civil Rights Act and uh, litigation risk that comes with that affecting who's selected for jobs. Um, but to get to the point of these complex systems, how did they develop? And I think the argument that's being made and something that I kind of uh, tend to agree with is that they evolved in an environment where competence was selected above anything else. That was the primary concern, especially when firms were still tied in with profit motive, you know, before the development of this ESG uh, perversion of market forces. When a firm is trying to make money, then obviously they're going to be incentivized to select for competence. And so over decades, uh, you know, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, these systems have been developing and they've become very complex and they're interdependent and they're dependent on the competence of the individuals that make them work. 
And if any of them fail at any time um, to bring that level of confidence, then a small failure here can have a cascading effect and lead to uh, a massive amount of death, destruction, or even just economic loss. And we're already seeing signs of that, things like the Palestine, East Palestine um, rail uh, accidents a few months ago, um, for example. Um, yeah. You know, that, um, that, 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 that the education system that we have had, I think, is one of the greatest fruits of the, um, the early progressive era from like sort of the beginning of the 20th century, where they quite deliberately and systematically went through society through all the different socioeconomic classes, identified people like who had, um, you know, promising uh, talents or abilities or intellectual skills and elevated them um, into the managers and the sort of technocratic classes in order to develop these systems. So, you know, the, the industrial infrastructure of North America, um, which was once the pride of the world, uh, was developed by these people who in turn were the fruit of this educational. Oh, yeah. So John dropped out, but uh, yeah, let me just uh, uh, try to riff a little bit on that because um, I think um, we can even abstract a little bit, you know, from the, from the, Com from the competency crisis we're seeing today in terms of like diversity, racial diversity, um, you know, uh, all, the, all these things, because I think it was Harrison who, who made the point uh, at some time ago um, that uh, in you could see similar dynamics happening in some of the Soviet states, right? Um, where it was, for example, like the program to bring the peasants into the universities, right? And so you had kind of like um, uh, quotas or like favoritism, um, you know, about certain classes. And, and so, which means moving away, you know, from pure competency, um, because you, you bring people in for political reasons, basically, uh, to make a point, right? So that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is like just plain political appointments, right? You could see that in the, in the Soviet era as well you know where you just brought in like the good marxists you know or like the the ideologically poor uh, pure uh, so uh, it's it's important i think to know that these things are things that can happen in history under various circumstances and uh, the way they manifest today you know is like about like these racial quotas and gender quotas and things like that but it's not uh, the 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 pattern is not necessarily unique, right? So that's just what happens when when ideology um, is more important than anything else, right? Um, and uh, I I just wanted to make one point as well because um, I just wrote about that uh, today in my article on Substack because you know in, with all these ideological ideas um, there is a a certain truth often in them that makes them work right that makes them catch on because nobody like would out of the blue accept something that is just com complete nonsense right you kind of need to build it up and it needs to have something going for it and um i'm kind of like uh, uh doing harrison's job here who's not here by quoting uh, andrew lobachevsky 
um, in Ponerology because he makes the point, and I think it's an absolutely crucial point for people to understand. And I think we have talked about this before that, you know, in, in a pathocracy or when you have like uh, basically character disturbed or pathological people rising to, to positions of power, right? And impose their, their kind of warped worldview on, on the rest of the world. Uh, what happens is that there's a sort of double speak going on, right? So um, these people, they, they mean certain things, you know? So when they talk about, you know, equality or, or um, diversity, you know, they mean specific things according to their ideological, their, their ideology, right? Like uh, absolute equity, blank slate uh, theory, you know, all, all these kinds of uh, ideological talking points. Um, but, you know, that normal people, just to who hear these things and and just go at it with common sense you know they they have they understand different things so there's there's this disconnect right so um with diversity for example um what normal people would would understand is like okay well yeah there are certain situations where diversity is a good thing right uh, like for example if you like you have a certain percentage of black uh, customers right i mean you you probably want to have some black guys around, right? Or if you if you're an ad agency and you you cater, you know, you need to develop like stuff for like certain demographics. I mean, diversity is not a bad idea, right? You need maybe some people from from that demographic to just come up with ideas and stuff. Or if you design a car, even you know, and and ten percent go to Africa, you know, maybe you want to have an African on there, you know, because. There was once this thing where they named a car, you know, gave a car a name, and it turns out that in Spanish it's it's a slur. Nova. You know what I mean? uh, yeah, something Nova, like that. No go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so things like that. So and and you know that's that's the phenomenon, right? That normal people, you know, who they hear these things and they they kind of correct them in their heads and they kind of um, steel man them just automatically, right? Because just what common sense says that, and and that's how they can get away with it, right? And and then because in, in talk shows, when they're under fire, you know, or when you criticize them, they can go back to the common sense position, right? Explain it in common sense terms. And then you think, oh, that's not so bad, right? But then, you know, they have a different understanding of that. So that's, I think one, there's two points I just wanted to make, you know, like the first one about like that it's not necessarily like unique for our like historical moment uh, that these things happened under different circumstances and just with different groups right uh, and uh, and also you know this, this kind of double talk that i think explains a lot you know and why why they can get away with it and why sensible people sometimes defend that kind of thing right and and things like that what are some of the stuff you know there's some I mean, parallels with communism where it's uh you know it's not the technologically or the technical competency that's promoted it's the political savviness the person that's able to navigate the hierarchy of the party and the social dynamics and get you know patrons in high places and get promoted based on whatever social political savvy rather than whatever their the competence in the area they're supposed to be managing you know and um i mean i'm thinking about there's an article that I came up in one of the discussions on this uh, demo Slack channel uh, about South Africa and what happened after that, how it went from basically being a first world country, you know, to being uh, 
shithole with the limited, you know, I mean, electrical blackouts, you know, constantly and just crumbling infrastructure and things not working. And then, you know, as I was reading the article about it, one of the things is that the ANC is this communist organization. And a lot of that was buried in the media reporting about South Africa and the, you know, Mandela's government, but just how corrupt it was and also how tied to communism it was. And even, you know, before uh, the end of apartheid, this Mandela and his, uh, you know, government in exile kind of people or not government in exile, but, you know, whatever his, his, the people that wanted to become the government, they're being, uh, you know, making frequent trips to the Soviet Union. You know, I mean, they're basically committed Marxists. And uh, that seems to be a thing. I mean, we're moving in that way in America now where you could argue that, I mean, communism essentially or some ver- version of it, communism 3.0 or whatever this new cultural Marxism is, uh, you know, this has taken over, become the official ideology of uh, a lot of the institutions and one of the major political parties and so forth, you know, and the current administration. It's just That just seems like a, a thing that is inherent with communism that they find reasons other than technical competency to promote people and it's more about whatever the uh orthodox thinking you know like politically correct thinking and you know the and and so the the affirmative action piece i look at that almost like that's a ruse or or a, a pretext to bring in this power to select who gets promoted and who doesn't more than they as i don't think a lot of these marxists really care that deeply about you know eliminating injustices and and helping people to fulfill their fullest potential or any of that you know it's it, they don't care about black people because as soon as a black person gets out of line ideologically they'll you know come up with the most ridiculous oh it's a black face of white supremacy or the you know um well you know it's just, it's, white supremacists yeah so it's like they it, it's a pretext I, you know, the, the Marxists use, I think, to seize the power through what, what HR departments or through the federal government or whatever to control who gets promoted, who gets to be placed in positions of, of influence within these institutions. You know, no, I don't know. If somebody else may push back on that. If, no, I, I agree. I agree 100 percent. I think the way that I think of it is that it gives them more flexibility to moralize their self-interest and so that's something that we tend to do anyway you know we moralize our self-interest that's what we do as human beings Mm. like that's that's what our ability to construct narratives is almost for right is we you know tell a story about how us getting what we need to survive and thrive is the moral thing and um marxism is essentially hijacking that and systematizing that on a communal scale. And so whether it's the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union talking about class, you know, that was very effective in that space time, right? Because uh, there there was unfairness going on. And so it was a, 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 a pressure point that could be exploited because um, there was a grain of truth to it. And that, you know, people were held down 
based on their class. You know, there were certain people that were competent that were not able to thrive because of that. They tried to do the same thing in the United States and it just didn't take off at all because middle-class folks, there was upward mobility and middle-class folks were very content. So they were not interested in a violent revolution, but what's our soft spot or our point of weakness in America? It's slavery. It is it's a point of weakness. It's a point of great shame because it's not aligned with American principles. It was a moral failing on the part of our country. And you could say, hey, you know, look at the context of the time. It's like, yeah, sure, fine, right? Um, it was all over the world. We ended it sooner than, than most places, but it happened and it was a tragedy. And, you know, some of the legacy of that was racism in and around that time. Now, we did a great job as a country of moving past that, but it's still this point of shame and uncertainty. And so it is a spot where, you know, they could initiate that long march and kind of jam in this lever in order to lever open those, uh, those past sins and that hypocrisy and weaponize it to moralize their own self-interest again, but on racial grounds, not class but grounds. I, but I, I think what's made it particularly um, dangerous as a means of agitation is, isn't exactly the legacy of slavery. That, that's sort of like the, the moral hook that they use to disarm the consciences of the white majority uh, and to inflame the passions of the black minority. But what makes it dangerous and intractable is the biological differences that do exist between those two different populations and the resentments that that can, uh, that can lead to. Because whenever you have two very different peoples living in the same society, uh, getting different outcomes just due to self-organization and the chips falling where they may kind of thing, uh, there's going to be the possibility and the probability of resentment because of that. Um, and that can be exploited and they have exploited it and it's intractable because it's to a large degree based on heritable characteristics, uh, which means that you can just keep it going and going and going. Whereas the original Leninism, uh, that was used to subvert the Soviet Union was based, uh, much more on class. There were ethnic components to it, like exploiting the resentments between like say like Lithuanians and Russians, for example, or Georgians and Russians and, and so on, all sorts of little ethnic conflicts that the, the Bolsheviks exploited. Uh, but the main thing was class. And it's generally the case that within a given population group, um, you can find competent people from each class. So by uh, insisting that, for instance, only working class or proletariat types could be uh, put into positions of responsibility, you could still find plenty competent people to put into um, the, the key parts of your economy. Uh, whereas under the affirmative action regime, it's pretty obvious that that's, that's not really happening. Um, and that, I think, is one of the things that to go back to this article, this this collapse of complex civilizations or, or, or of our complex systems, or uh, you know Daniel D's example of South Africa, um, how they went from a, a 
country that had a space program and was a nuclear power uh, to a failed state. Um, you know, and they, part of that is certainly related to black economic empowerment laws that say, that for example, uh, for every one white person you hire, you have to hire 19 black people um, for uh, the same same position. But you can't find enough competent uh, Zulu or or uh, or Josa. How do you pronounce that? I don't know. X H O S A. Does anyone know how that's pronounced? I Josa. Josa. I think is it's a guttural. It? Okay, yeah. Um, but you know, finding enough competent Hosa or Zulu is just it's 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 not proving very very easy. Um, but you also just can't hire that number of them as a practical matter, which means that uh you end up with a very small number of competent people in things like your power authority, um, or your you know, ministry of roads or what have you. And then you have a huge number of people who are excluded from participation in those systems entirely on, you know, the fact that they're just because they're white, uh, who then live in poverty because they can't get a job as the infrastructure collapses around them. Something that has come up with me when I've been hearing all this talk about the Soviet Union, it's something I noticed before. I finally got a word for it. One of the problems we've got with our complex society is affirmative action is basically intellectual Lysenkoism. It's the idea that like, yeah, well, if we put people in these positions, if only we give them you know, the right education, we let them here, they'll rise to the le that level simply by being put there. And Bingo. there's no real allowance for people who are. You know, let's face it, half, half of Americans are below average in IQ. You know what? These people are they They can be good people, decent people, but they're really not qualified for much besides manual labor or the service industries. So but instead of saying, you know, like a communist would, well, let's make sure that our workers, the people who work with their hands, get decent wages, that they're protected, exactly. you know, building our structure. We're going to they're all going to learn to code. And it's like these, you know. Even if everybody in America could learn to code, there aren't that many coding jobs out there. Exactly. You know, like Grant was saying before, like what made America immune to class-based subversion was precisely the fact that the working class in America, you, this is like 100 years ago, certainly not now, uh, were very, really well off compared to their counterparts around the world. And their standard of living was increasing. So you know, sure, they were manual laborers or technicians or what have you, but they had a good life. You know, you could support a wife and three kids and have a car in the garage uh, working as a machinist at the local plant, you know, for example, um, or even as a bricklayer. And you, that's increasingly difficult to do now. We have this mm. system where... Um, unless you are a member of the cognitive or managerial elite, you have a really hard time uh, obtaining the basics of a good life. I, I started reading Peter Turchin's new book, End Times, and he gets into all of this stuff. One thing that just, stu that just stood out um, based on what you guys just said is that in like the 50s, I believe it was in the 50s and 60s, 15% of Americans went to college. And today it's like 60 plus percent. And so he talks about this in relation to overproduction of elites. 
and of course goes through all the factors in the last 50 years that have contributed to the the political instability in in the united states and in addition to that over well overproduction is the is the worst um, worst predictor it's the it's the most it's the strongest indicator of you know an upcoming um crisis or destabilization like event like a like a civil war but in addition to that has been the stagnating relative wages and so so he talks about exactly that thing how in the from like 1910 until 1960 wages were rising higher than like gdp or or um and taking into account inflation as well so people were so the like the the lower end of the or just the, the regular person was able to to make a lot more money and it's been going down since the since the 70s so that um <clears throat> like i think the again going back to college the, so for college education it's take it's something like taking into like it's very complex when you get into the w wages and inflation and the relative values of things but it basically takes something like at least four you have to work four times as much to to get a college education as you did like in the 50s and so you have to work you have to work more it, it costs more so you're poorer going to college and you have what uh more than four well depending on the field um more than four times the competition so there's less of a chance of you getting um you know actually getting a job and that leads to that kind of that overproduction of elites, which leads to the, you know, you have over, over educated, um, upper class, middle class people who then, you know, become revolutionaries because they can't get a job and they don't see the point. Well, it's, what I find interesting in the current um, elite overproduction that we're experiencing. Uh, so who is actually really succeeding right now, right? Um, in terms of joining the elite. And it seems to me that the sort of hereditary elite in um, Western countries is still doing very well for itself. You know, if you're a legacy admit to Harvard, like, you know, um, you're getting into Harvard and you're going to get a good, a good position afterwards, right? Uh, and then you have your sort of uh, affirmative action hires, your diversity admits, who also do pretty well for themselves, as long as they get into one of the Ivies, um, which I think could be conceptualized as the hereditary American elite using these policies as a way of shielding themselves from direct competition by choosing who their competition will be. So, you know, rather than having to deal with uh, these young, hungry, ambitious heartlanders, for example, who actually are high IQ and highly competent, um, they have tried to politically limit who gets into the legacy elite and limit it to people who actually can't really, you know, compete uh, on a fair footing with that, their own That is uh, unquestionably, science. unquestionably one of the strategies is being employed. And but what's interesting is that, is that those those clever, ambitious Heartland kids aren't necessarily taking that lying down. So then instead of like, you know, going to Harvard or whatever, they're like, screw this. John cut out. So John cut out, yeah. 
So yeah, uh, what a perfect example of, of exactly what he's talking about. One of these heartland kids that's not going to take that line down is the great Robert Barnes. It's a perfect example. Went to Yale and while he was at Yale in his first year, what did they start trying to do? Get rid of uh, need-based scholarships, which would do exactly what was John, what John was talking about. It would limit the competition from people that were highly skilled, highly competent, but didn't have the financial means to compete, uh, prevent them from being able to enter the system and compete. And so he went hard in the paint in order, against that policy. And, you know, they offered him a kind of backroom deal. Hey, be quiet. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out even more. And he was like, no, you guys can get bent. He uh, dropped out in protest and then went on to become one of the most successful tax attorneys in history. And now he's kind of leading up the, the populist movement, uh, counter, you know, the, the deep state and, and elites. Um, and it's been a, a big inspiration to me at the very least. So, um, yeah, to John's point, there is, you know, that, that's absolutely a feature and look no further than the life and work of Robert Barnes as uh, evidence of how that's unfolding. Uh, forgot what I was going to say. Sorry about that. Yeah. So and since <laughs> you raised your hand and everything. Yeah, very polite. Then you get called yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I... You were gonna talk, Harrison? No. No, I was just um... Oh, that was Luke, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I yeah, was just gonna make it a, a very a very quick point because I think um uh what also might play into this, you know. I mean, with all that diversity stuff, you know, I ask myself, um I mean, among those target populations, you know, like the, the, the really smart ones, like, are they going to, you know, put up with it and be like the diversity higher, you know? So, so maybe even those guys, you know, like they kind of like lowering the bar or lowering their competition, you know, by, I mean, who's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like, um, a weird thing, right? I mean, um, for, well, the way for those the way that those folks get subverted is through mismatch, you know? So I don't know if this is controversial, right? Mismatch theory, but I'm just quoting Thomas Sowell here. Right. Um, so, you know, if you uh, get into a, a school or a program that, you know, you're not matched to, in other words, we'll just, we'll just use SAT scores as a proxy here and say, Hey, if you are, uh, you know, a, a Asian dude, and you have a 1600 on your SAT, you have to demonstrate competency and proficiency in all these other ways in order to be competitive at uh, an Ivy League, on some Ivy Leagues, right? Because there was a lawsuit about that, that, that showed that they were being discriminated against specifically. And um, say that you are um, a black female student, and, you know, say you get a 1400 on your SAT, like, 1400 on your SAT, that's shit hot, you know, like that, that's a smart student, but uh, are they going to be able to hang with somebody that easily got a 1600 on their SAT and maxed it out? Probably not. Not if, not if that the program is designed to be a challenge for that person that got a 1600, right? But then what happens in, in 
the current dispensation is that um, they notice that, oh, retention has gone down because uh, our diversity admits keep dropping out. So we need to keep retention up. So then they start pressuring the uh, professors to uh, water down the program, basically, which they do. Because uh, a lot of because it's racist if they or if they're dropping out. Because it's right? racist. It's for impact. Hey, why are exactly, all the diversity right? hires is dropping out? They must exactly. Be, it's exactly. I, 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 Calculus I, I, is I, racist. I've seen this. I've seen this happen in real time. Uh, myself kind of directly um but then what happens is that the people who come out of those programs are no longer as rigorously trained as they were before so you know again like your your cog not only is your cognitive elite now being watered down in terms of um the human capital who uh is being brought in for training but they are not being raised to the same level of competence as they were before but they're still being put in charge of these systems which have gotten no less and in most cases far more complex than they were say 50 years ago or even 20 years ago um but at the same time you've got these this parallel elite which is rising in sort of the tech sector right um so i, I found what's happening with like elon musk and twitter just fascinating to watch because you know he comes in oh we just lost Kenas. uh all right um thanks for coming man uh so he comes in, he fires like 80% of Twitter staff, uh, the majority of whom seem to have been there primarily as some form of political officer, almost like the legacy elite was, like the Ivy League elite was trying to seize control of this new power base in Silicon Valley, which they, they kind of did throughout the 2010s. When Elon comes in, takes over the company, fires them all, uh, restores the company to profitability, and immediately goes very off message as far as the Ivy League elite is concerned. Um, basically, this this more uh, meritocratic new elite uh, striking back against to 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 retake territory uh, from the legacy elite. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of like Turchin's whole whole concept of of the overproduction of elites, right? Uh, I find that to be really interesting because we're seeing this this intra elite competition play out in in real time right now. Uh, with the, yeah, imposter, yeah. Oh. Sorry, Grant, you mentioned the chat imposter syndrome. That's a that's a real thing. <laughs> and you know, twenty years ago, you never heard about imposter syndrome. Suddenly, it's they're, they're all talking about it. And that's that's what I was trying to to drive at to answer Luke's question, which is like, why do people not stand up and say, "Hey, this is BS"? Um, and a lot of times, I think it's an underlying imposter syndrome where they're concerned that they're being rewarded and enjoying a position of prestige and and gaining money that they don't necessarily have the skills to warrant or support. And so oh, that's know, gonna they know that's full gonna. Well. Well, they I mean, maybe, well. maybe, this maybe, is, maybe not. Sometimes unconscious, you, this kind of thing can be unconscious and it can just kind of true, give you, but give even you a certain at, at, malaise at, and unwillingness at, to confront the system and a, a lack of at some level, confidence. They certainly get it. Yeah. Um, so I don't and know if you ever read like crushing, Spandrels. right? It's crushing. Did, did, anyone, spirit. did anyone here ever read Spandrel's essay on bio-Leninism? It's sort of a, a classic NRX essay definitely worth reading uh if you haven't basically this is his point is that the the this system 
specifically relies on loyalty of people who are raised to a station that they would not be able to get to on the basis of their own uh, sort of innate talents, their own innate ability. And they understand full well that they would never be professors or lawyers or doctors or you know, middle managers absent the support of this system. So they, have, they give the system their complete loyalty. The trade-off at a systemic level is they're incompetent and they keep breaking things. But the advantage is the system can rely on this like absolutely ironclad loyalty from all of its minions. And he draws the direct analogy with how Leninism did the same thing by ensuring the loyalty of uh, Russians raised from the proletariat uh, who would never have been able to um, occupy those stations in the old monarchist regime. I think Luke hit on something when he just said that it's crushing to the spirit. I think that that is crushing to the spirit of the elites that partake. You know, even, even if they can't articulate it exactly, um, I think it undermines confidence and, and crushes spirit and aligns them with the machine, um, at, at least, least this the, current the good, elite. The good ones, right? And my, my point was, you know, because like, you have those people that you talked about, John, who like get into it and they know full well, you know, that they they wouldn't have a chance and they are kind of like um, probably like uh, not the best people, right? Who, who, who really want to take advantage of that and, you know, kind of know it's, it's BS and they roll with it, you know? And, and I was thinking about like those like actually talented people, you know, in these groups, um, they, uh, I mean, who want, who really wants to be like a, a diversity hire, right? I mean, it's just, um, it's something like so condescending and, and mad, you know, um, that, that system that I think that further discourages even them, you know, and, and that was one thing. And, uh, and I've, just, you know, I've definitely talked to people who, um, are from, uh, marginalized demographics to use the black speech of Mordor. And, um, they intensely resent the exactly, perception yeah. Yeah. that they are where they are because they are diversity hires and that standards need to be lowered for them and such. They resent it if they are actually talented enough to, to have done the work and got that, that's that's what I yeah that's exactly what I was thinking you know that that the the, the good ones you know like you you kind of filter them you, ne you negatively select them you know <laughs> um, and uh, and just to be clear you know because maybe some people. Um, you know, like think, oh, what's this kind of argument? Are we saying that like um, marginalized people are, are dumber or not talented or whatever? I mean, that's what you usually get, right? Um, from certain types. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it's just so obvious uh, that that's what's happening once you, you, you know, do any kind of affirmative action whatsoever, you know, because the thing is, um, it's just such a glaring contradiction because if you hire somebody right as a company and and you do any kind of quota you know like that is not based on just regular like competency like or whatever like uh, application then um i mean what's really the thing right because you you just you you need to would need to go back to the university level right because there is your pool of applicants and uh, and then you but at the university you have the problem that there too you have a limited pool of of applicants right and so you need to go further back and back um till like i don't know like primary school to like generate the appropriate pool even under the you know assumption that there is such a thing you know like as widespread white supremacy and discrimination and stuff 
um, because then that would mean like that this limits the pool, right? This very phenomenon. <laughs> and then you would have to go back. I mean, that's what they're trying to do too, right? But it kind of excludes uh, anything, you know, that um, that is that goes on at a, at a later stage, you know, any uh, affirmative action, unless you sacrifice uh, competency. Right? It's, it's just really that simple. So that's uh, just not an argument for like groups or like, or um differences between groups it's just uh, straight logic right that once you do that you lose competency basically uh, and that's just the thing i wanted to mention because there's probably still people out there who just think you know whenever you talk about you know um things falling apart because of affirmative action that implies necessarily like an argument for like i don't know genetic group disparities or something like that i mean that's a separate discussion right um it's just you know by definition, once you do um, affirmative action, other than at you no, know, at a kindergarten level, right? Then it's game over. Right? You lose competency. So yeah. Once you, I mean, a way to put that would just be that, you know, once you are prioritizing something other than competence, you will therefore not be getting competence because something yeah, else that's, is being prioritized, and it doesn't and matter central, what you're prioritizing. That's the central thesis of Robertson's uh, essay. Yeah. Is that it? you know diversity as an objective and meritocracy or competence as an objective they're on a collision course because they're different priorities you know so it's like either one's a priority or the other and you're going to sacrifice one if you pursue unless, that's, unless that's you know unavoidable with the only exception you know that i mentioned earlier uh, if uh, like diversity and competence actually converge right which can happen in certain situations uh, which is then what they usually tell you, right? I mean, because it, it's a thing. It, it, sometimes it's actually a plus, you know, if you have a certain background uh, and know certain people have a certain um, ethnicity even, you know, because you can then, um, yeah, bring in that knowledge about how to deal with those people basically, right? Um, but that's just, it's an exception, right? But the, that's just where competence and diversity may converge, but it's it's rare and you can certainly not generalize that. Yeah, but if they converge, it'll happen organically, right? Yeah. So if you're targeting competency and it's a it's an area where it's going to converge, then that's going to organically, exactly. spontaneously happen. It's not something that if, if you target diversity, then it's not going to happen more often than it happens because it's not always the case. Um, yeah, I mean, like the example of like customer facing uh, positions where, you know, you want to reach certain markets. So you want to, you know, well, you know, part of the competence of that position is being able to reach the market that you're trying to market to, right? Um, and that could very easily organically converge towards uh, a more diverse workplace. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, that's that in uh, atomic physics or in uh, uh, medical imaging. Yeah, the more nerdy um, and like a nerd in, in basement kind of uh, job it is, you know, the less any of that will play into it, right? That's that's for sure. Well, one example was... of... Go ahead, Harris. No, go ahead, Daniel. I haven't heard you um, talk yet. Uh, well, yeah, one, one of the things that, you know, an example of this where the natural convergence um, versus it being promoted from on high by fiat, like artificially, is, um, you know, the diversity in entertainment right like and, and lately this has been a thing where people have 
spoken out against it uh, or criticized it, the attempts to, you know, whitewash, for, or not whitewash, blackwash old movie roles, you know, remake a, a movie, but swap the races around or, you know, and, and then when people criticize that, the response is, oh, you must be racist. You just don't like to see black people in these roles. And say, like, well, you know, but as people have pointed out, you know, Gen X, for example, and uh, older millennials, I mean, we grew up, you know, wanting to be like Mike, you know, the, the Michael Jordan, you know, is the biggest celebrity of, of our childhood, you know, you have Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Eddie Murphy, you know, Denzel Washington, all these black actors that had these iconic roles, black musicians that had huge hits and, you know, black athletes that people, you know, genuinely looked up to and admired growing up. You know, the Cosby show is like the biggest TV show of the eighties, you know, I know it's been memory hold because of Cosby's crimes. But uh, I mean, the show itself, you know, was great and people loved it, you know, and it's like, so the, the, the lesson there is like, it's stupid to say, you know, the people criticizing, say, The Little Mermaid for, you know, being remade with a black mermaid and how this is a pattern that only goes one way now, you know, where it's all the old white roles getting remade with black characters and not vice versa ever, you know, it's not that people care about not seeing black people on screen it's like no but when it happens organically when it's like you know denzel washington or or uh you know uh wesley snipes or somebody that's like they're there because they they they're great actors and they do an outstanding job and it's like it's natural then people respond well to that it's not racist it's like people want confidence and they're obviously you know mismatched there anyway go ahead mm -hmm. harrison I uh, I saw a video the other day on YouTube, just a, a guy who didn't have very many followers, but uh, a young black guy giving his commentary. And it was that it was news that apparently they're doing a live action how to train your dragon. And for anyone who hasn't seen the animated how to train your dragon movies, it's about like a, a bunch of Vikings. And, um, and they're, you know, and they, they find dragons and there's so the main character gets a, gets his pet dragon named toothless, and there's a love interest named Astrid. And apparently they, so they've, they've race swapped Astrid um, with this young black actress. And so this young black guy is, is, was just saying, okay, you know, I've had enough of this. Like, this is, this is stupid. I hate this. He says, I'm, I'm the kind of person they're trying to pander to. And even I find this super annoying. It's like, this doesn't make sense. You don't have, to, you don't have to be black or a character doesn't have to be black for me to be able to identify with them. So this reminded me of this great cartoon. I think it's Stone Boss is the guy on Twitter that does these uh, kind of political cartoons. Stone toss. Little, stone toss. And, um, and so it, it was the it was about the Little Mermaid. And so there's this little black girl seeing the Little Mermaid saying, Oh, finally, you know, a character that, just like me. And then the next panel is a bunch of little black boys watching Dragon Ball and all being like, yeah, you know, <laughs> loving, <laughs> loving like the, the white, the white Japanese characters in Dragon Ball. And uh, I mean, so so that's the that's also a point is that it's um, like what so what you were saying, Daniel, about you know you could you could be a white person watching black characters and identify them and look up to them and kind of like idolize them, um, whether it's um, like a real life person like Michael Jordan or just a, a character in a movie played by a black actor, and but it's the the it there's this asymmetry that seems to be, um, well, well it's directed 
there's probably multiple motivations, whether it's directed at um, at white people or black people. But the the essence of it is basically you can only identify with this character if if they're the same color as you, and if like to the to a black person say, and to the white person, you have to identify with this character no matter what. Um, it doesn't matter if if you if you think they should be white, if you have good reasons or, or whatever. It, it's basically a, a trap to to be able to call someone racist, and that's that's pretty much it. And so, like black people don't necessarily like it. Um, well, at least a lot of them just see through it and don't appreciate it. So it is kind of a, it's just a it's just an fu. That's kind of uh, and I saw that was um uh, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was multiple kind of social or multiple entertainment commentators like online maybe it was even critical drinker i don't know but like people of that sort maybe even nerdrotic i don't know but basically saying that this is this is deliberate they might have even had articles um kind of like insiders talking about this but it is, it is essentially deliberate it, it is an f you to fans it's they they want to take they they want to take something that you like and then ruin it to be able to then call you racist or sexist or, or homophobic or whatever when it's it's it's, it's a marketing giant troll yeah it's it, it it's a bit of a marketing technique right so you have a yeah. an absolute lemon at a movie um but if you yeah, can yeah. get the internet racists to sort of be like oh my god you have a black woman playing that blonde character or more often ginger i don't know if you've seen the ginger genocide meme but it's pretty funny um all of the redhead animated characters from like the last like 30 years they're all black now so it's uh <laughs> but you know if you if you can if you if you can generate that controversy and that basically streisand effects your uh mm-hmm. your marketing for the movie which i mean there might be something to that uh but it doesn't seem to have translated into much in the way of box office success you know um so i I'm, i don't know how, how deliberate that is i can easily believe that it's much it's just a simple ideological fuck you uh mm-hmm. yeah i think it's probably something like that and uh before i go because i I need to log off soon, but um, just wanted to to uh, make a point about uh, what you said, Harrison um, and Daniel. I think the you know the this kind of like uh, racial swap and the, this almost kind of trap to to call people racist, right? Um, this kind of baiting, um, and I think you know people don't really react to the fact that. You know, there's just like I don't know more black actors in movies or whatever. I mean, this that's been going on for for a while, right? That um, they kind of like you know had a, a little bit more diverse cast or even like different stories. You know, like that um, that some of the, the those famous black actors you know came to the scene and and nobody really had like that much of an issue with that, right? I think what people really are reacting against is just the ideology the ideology and the the absolute stupidity of it and and that's just the thing right i mean it's just um just common sense and intuition tells you you know like swapping like the little mermaid for black girl is just so insanely stupid and just absolutely you know just crazy and mad you know just even the idea you know it's just you know you don't there's no argument to be made right it's just pure intuition it's like what the hell you know and and people kind of know that it's ideology right that it's just um and and it's stupid and simplistic and 
uh, ideology, you know, that that doesn't make sense. And and just that, that's, I think, what people are reacting against and and not so much, you know, the, yeah, what, whatever. Like, I mean, yeah, I think that's, people have a good sense of that kind of thing. And um, and the, the, the stupidity can just be overwhelming, right? And then so people go, no. All right, so I'll leave it there. See ya. All right, Luke, uh, have a good one. The, the, uh, the thing I would say is like it's, um, it, you know, it seems to be racial. That's how it masquerades, but it's really ideological because, uh, you know, like Grant Smith, you did a good job earlier uh, elevating melanin voices by quoting Thomas Sowell. But, you know, it's like people like Thomas Sowell are never the ones where you said like, elevate black voices. He never gets elevated. You know, it's like it's you're, you're, if you're black, as long as you ideologically don't get out of line you're good you can you know be elevated and promoted and um we should uh we should uh, we should elevate kanye west more <laughs> <laughs> depending on which personality of his is speaking you know <laughs> may get you into trouble um but yeah no i was thinking about this uh i think from bad catitude uh Gato, the uh you know, his whole postulates about politics. And there's one that uh, was really good. I guess the title is, well, Gatto's postulate from September of 23rd, 2022. But he's talks about his propositions that, you know, when politicians are bought and sold, the sort of people attracted to politics will be grifters and that the grifters are going to grift and that grifting turns politics into story time where that's the easiest way to sell people on bullshit is you just you know give them a good story where it makes them identify with the oppressed hero that's being saved by the virtuous people in politics and uh anyways then he goes on to say the true believers are more believable than grifters and so it's like the first generation they may know it's a grift they may know they're just using these uh, appeals and i think clinton was in bill clinton was an example of this where it's like i don't think I mean, he didn't, for all his, uh, you know, acting, he didn't really feel people's pain or, you know, care that much about the working class, but he just knew the right buttons to push, the right things to say to shift with the times and, you know, get elected. But the dude is smart and relatively competent, being evil, but, you know, he's, he's, he's more competent than, say, Joe Brandon, right? Or it's like, or people in Brandon's administration, you know, so it's like, now you have true believers, the, the competent people who were just lying, uh, they're, you know, now this generation is people that actually, they've, they've grown up believing this stuff, and the true believers are more believable than grifters, so then Gatto goes on to say, um, did people start to prefer true believers to grifters and elect them to office, and the more fervent new leaders tell more intense stories, and it make the public committed to the story. And then the true believers is that they do not know that the grift is a grift. As Ogato says, what began as crony corporatism and scam has become a secular religion activism cult. It's false and facile tenets designed to separate fools from their money and enrich special interests have become sincerely held ideological dogma. And those who preach it to you have strained and been strained and selected until only the most gullible and zealous remain. And so then he's, it says, you know, a democratic government powerful enough to dictate I, that. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. that by I'm not really sure about that time series. I mean, about that ordering of events. Like, if you look at something like um, uh, civil rights and everything that's emanated from that, back in the 1960s, 
it was all true believers as far as I can tell there were it was very few grifters involved it was people who like really were filled with moral fervor to write the what they saw as the the injustices of American society um you think LPJ though? I mean, like in the U.S., it was the Sikh for civil rights act. That's okay. the one that is has yeah. No, LBJ is definitely a actor. That dude, yeah. But, uh, total and Junior, I guess, is a he's he's a bit of an ambiguous character. Um, he may well have been a grifter, in fact. But I think a lot of the people on the street who were supporting it, marching and so on, like they were, they were definitely all all for it. And I think LBJ just kind of took advantage of that. Um, but you know, now, 60 years out from all of that, um, it's it's very difficult to ignore that affirmative action has not worked, for example. This has just been disastrous. I mean, mm. affirmative action is a swear word in the culture. But turbocharges, you know, the thing that what I was saying with the true believers now, they've been straight, selected for their ideological belief and that it's only the most gullible and stupid that remain. Now you add to that, it's like turbocharged with this DEI mandate. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, you know? I don't know that that's exactly how it's gone. I mean, it seems to me that there's an incredible amount of cynicism built into our system, where we have this kind of like public morality that everyone sort of has to abide by. Um, you know, racism being the greatest sin, things like that. The post-war political consensus, but you know privately people tend to be there's a lot of preference falsification privately people tend to be quite a bit more right-wing than they are publicly um including the sort of people running things who are just kind of cynically manipulating the grift i think i i don't know how many true believers there really are um i mean now on the on the ground i think there's a lot but yeah i'm gonna have to side with john against the bad cat on this one even though i like I like the bad cat a lot. Um, but like you look at you look at like communism in the Soviet Union, right? Um, in the early days, you had a lot of true believers involved in the communist government. And then you get to like the 1980s, 1990s, and no one in the system believed in the system. It was all a grift. All the true believers were purged. Yeah. So like, hey, this is Harrison's whole thing, right? Is pathocracy. And I mean, I would think that the people that would be selected for in that environment, or, or I guess this environment are people that don't have a lot of cognitive dissonance for pretending to believe stuff that they don't believe to cynically uh, gain and maintain power. I would think that that's who would rise to the top. And I think that's exactly what has happened. Um where the like I, I won't go into any more details i'll just you think just what you were saying earlier and i can't remember now if this was um you grant that was saying that like uh i uh, kind of lost my train of thought there with um oh, sorry i'll get my train of thought back well to kind of put the the examples that all you guys gave together because like use the example of um, the civil rights movement and LBJ. So, yeah, I agree with you, Daniel, that LBJ was was a grifter, you know, in in, the, in this terminology. And but the so to put it into a wider framework, then like the civil rights movement would be what what Lobachevsky might call a um, 
Well, it's a it's a it's a group. It's a movement. It's an association that starts out with ideals and with a, with a certain ideology and with with true believers, and it becomes then a secondary ponderogenic association, which is basically a, a, a an infiltrated, a, a, a psychopathologically infiltrated group or movement as time progresses, and so you get more and more grifters joining and and piling on as what as happened in like the communist party or the communist movement or this or the whole socialist movement prior to all the socialist communist rev revolutions so you but you, but both phenomena can coexist so you can have you can have a grifter that'll just um that'll exploit a movement even in its inception even at an early stage but when you look at the the kind of the the mass demographics of the movement it tends to go in the direction that uh, that john and and grant are saying where where it does start out in that case with the the mass of true believers who get progressively more and more infiltrated by by the grifters to the point where like in the soviet union all of the original generation of the of the true believers for the most part gets purged out you know either either kicked out or killed in that case and then and then you're left with this super concentrated group which is pretty much all grifters so that tends to be the direction that it that it moves in kind of like a group dynamics type situation um but like so but you but you'll find in you'll you'll find individual instances that go against that that model like you said so you can have grifters early on or you can have true believers later on it'll just be in kind of reverse proportions i think so i guess the, the idea then is with the you have these psychopathic grifters and they see it as opportunity to, you know, come to power, gain influence by using this ideology that has, yeah. you know, they use the energy and momentum of the true believers. And once in, they select for, in some ways, true believers are, are incompetent people that they can control to protect themselves from competition. So it's like you're, uh, I guess I could, you know, to map onto like 1984, that you have the inner party of psychopathic grifters that they don't believe any of it. But then the outer party, they're expected to be ideologically pure, or at least pretend to be, because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that makes sense. I wonder with uh, you know the the example of South Africa and the article that um, uh, I can't remember now who forwarded it, um, but the you know the way that that went down after from '94 until now with this deterioration, but a whole lot of corruption and a government that's obviously Marxist and you know, has a lot of criminal, you know, grifters. Uh, it's a nice way of putting it in charge. And, um, I, you know, with with that, I mean, I guess, I, you know, I'm wondering, like you have, the, 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 I know the history of that country and the demographics are going to make it different than say like America or Canada or whatever, but, uh, you know, there you'd have, I guess a lot of true believers at some point in this idea of black people, you know, we've been oppressed, we're owed this and that. We have, this is all good that we should be, they should be forced to hire us in greater numbers and give us shares of, you know, the companies need to be such and such percent black owned and, you know, have so, so, so many executives that are black and, and so forth. And, you know, whites need to be stripped of their power. But then you have the, I guess the psychopaths in government who who use that and they're not really interested in helping anybody but themselves and their own families um and of course over time 
you know, one, the people, the people at the top are criminals. We don't give a shit about making things actually run properly. And the people in the middle tier are just true believing morons. And so all the people that know how to make stuff happen are purged over time. Um, you know, that that's a interesting, I'm thinking about this, like, uh, when out okay so i grew up in for the most part in the memphis area and uh the politics there is it's similar maybe even to south africa you could say where it's like you, you, it's really a black majority city the surrounding areas you know 50 50 but um the you know the early 90s they get the first black mayor there's you know this all right it's our and there seemed to be an, a mindset among the politicians that took office around the era that it's like, okay, it's our turn now. Like the white governments before they were, they looked out for themselves. Now we're going to look out for ourselves. And a, a difference seems to be the old government was, because it seems like government's just going to be corrupt, but the old government was corrupt, but within limits is like people who practice some form of cronyism, but at the end of the day, they try to make sure things worked and got done. And you know, you, you replace that with people who just see it as a grift and there's not any of that sense of like, we got to, we can skim off the top, but we still got to make sure things function properly at the end of the day, you know? So now it's just, it's just like, how can we just scam and skim and, you know, and who cares at the end of the day, if stuff doesn't work, it's just, if it doesn't work, it's a sign that we need federal money or federal aid or, or white people are racist and they're fleeing the city or, or the schools or whatever. Uh, you know, so I don't know there, but if that seems like there's a limit to how much that'll happen in America, where given the, the, the country as a whole, the demographics are, are different than they are say in Memphis or South Africa. But, um, and I guess maybe that's why they've gone from promoting black people to now it's promoting that, pride you know degeneracy like you you can be white you can go skip to the top of the you know the victimology hierarchy by identifying as the opposite gender or whatever so now that's like the proxy for we, we need diversity as in we need guys that you know want to put on a dress and wear lipstick and claim to be women and you know so that's like now the 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 thing that rather than competence is uh is getting promoted. I don't know. So just on on South Africa, and hopefully my connection will stay stable long enough for me to say this. Um I think South Africa, you, you gotta avoid projecting North American uh politics onto it. It, in my opinion, is primarily ethnic ethnic there rather than ideological. Uh, the way things have unfolded in the last 30 years. Um, you know, most of the sort of Afro-Marxist or the, the thing, organizations like the Economic Freedom Front or uh, the ANC, these are basically ethnic supremacist organizations. Um, but the previous apartheid government was similarly kind of like a, maybe not a supremacist organization. Well, in a sense it was, um, but, you know, it was like, you know, there for the Boers, essentially, and the white South Africans. Um, so you, you kind of have these these different ethnic groups jostling for power, and they'll justify it sometimes on the basis of ethnicity or on the basis of ideology, but it's it's very thinly veiled there. Um, and 
so I mean, insofar as you have like true believers in South Africa in the sort of uh, civil rights uh, regime, I think it's largely ethnic self-interest on the part of the black majority, um, just tribal politics, and on the part of the white minority to us. It's it's kind of like, oh, well, these are the fashionable beliefs that uh, the imperial center is pushing out, so we should try to conform to them. And that sort of helps to split the white minority there in terms of, um, you know, whether they're for or against the current regime. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know, like, does that really, is that really true believers exactly? Um, it, it, I'm, I'm not sure that it's 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 exactly the same as you would have in the U.S., where you have you know uh, people who have a really strong ideological motivation. Um, They're probably true believers in like the racial grievance stuff. Maybe not so much the the whatever Marxism or whatever that is that the government's official ideology is, but in terms of time to get back against whitey yeah that's i'm sure they really believe that like it's like the the marxist aspect is just kind of there as window dressing um it's really just more kind of like well we're zulus and we want some more stuff for zulus you know like you have that i want it the article i was saying i guess a zoza i don't know how to pronounce it but uh that they're they have some beef with the zulus and so they're actually oh they hate targeting the zulus too yeah yeah, they they, they, they absolutely all, all those different groups hate each other that was that's one of the aspects of apartheid which is not widely um appreciated in the west is that it was motivated partly to keep the different uh african tribes from slaughtering each other that was why they had they were like okay this is your homeland that's this other group's homeland that's why they had the internal passport system because otherwise you'd have like groups of zulus going and like slaughtering groups of hosa or vice versa so just to keep the peace they were like okay you know you you all have to be in your different spots and and sort of stay there unless you can demonstrate that you're not going to be violent um so yeah i mean it's not it's certainly not as as simplistic as black versus white down there so we're, we're we're talking a lot about what people believe. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't I don't think it matters that much, you know, because there's a narrative that you're going to advance that is a moralization of your self interest. Whether or not you believe that narrative, I mean, like I don't like hypocrites, so I tend to, you know, like people that, you know, say what they believe, but at the same time, if they believe really stupid shit. Is that really any less aggravating and annoying if it's if they're able to engage in efficient self-deception and believe something really stupid that serves their own self-interest in a way that takes that out of other people's hides? I don't know that it matters, but this is this is why I'm a, a free market guy, is because we will moralize our self-interest, but really the only system that allows us to do that in a way that doesn't screw everybody else over is in a system that respects uh, property rights and uh, a system where you have to actually provide something of value to somebody in order to profit. You know, that, that way it's like, yeah, the, the ideology of say anarcho-capitalism or, or free market, you know, you're moralizing your own self-interest if you're competent and you're able to produce stuff of value for people. 
but at the same time, like you're not taking it out of anybody's hide if you're not using the levers of coercion, government power in order to do it. And that's, that's where the free market people go wrong. Like, especially on the right, um, you know, like Republican types that use free market rhetoric, but engage in crony capitalism, which is the, you know, the free market example of moralizing your own self-interest in a way that's not uh, compatible with reality. But to get back to what we're talking about with this, this article and these systems, you know, these systems, whether it's the formation of bureaucracy, you know, that allows, you know, because when, when you have priorities being set, right? So like the priority is diversity. Well, it doesn't matter if there's, there's widespread freedom and things aren't, aren't centralized. If things are decentralized, it doesn't matter if a firm here or a firm there decides to do that. Or if the government's really small, it doesn't matter so much if the government does that at some, at some level. It's when you have everything massively bureaucratized and centralized that you have a single point of failure where you do something like, hey, we're going to decide to promote diversity over competence at every level of every organization in the entire world. Now you, now you have a problem, but you would have that same problem if you prioritized any one thing across all those institutions at once. So it's like, is the problem that they're doing this or is the problem that everything is bureaucratized and power is centralized such that there's a single point of failure? Because there's a million ways that you could screw shit up. This is just one way. Um, and so is, is, it the, is this the fundamental problem? Because if there isn't centralized power like this, it's self-correcting where some firms are going to do this and they're going to get outcompeted and go out of business and have some sort of reality check to, to encourage them not to do that if it doesn't work. So it's like, say, hey, maybe we're all freaking wrong. And this is like the best thing to do. And it's the most effective thing. Well, if things aren't centralized and there's able to be competition then we would be able to see that that would, like they people could prove their own uh you know positions on this kind of thing and risk their own capital and their own property um anyway i know that's kind of shifting well to kind of build on that and um almost sum up the article uh it's like you can either have a large number of small reality checks spread throughout the entire system, constantly correcting it at, at local levels um, and allow for all sorts of experimentation and so on. Or you can use the heavy hand of the state to prevent reality checks, have that single point of failure, and then you just end up with one giant reality check when it all comes crashing down. Um, you know, it's almost like this uh, conservation of reality checks, right? So in the, in the kind of like moral libertarian system, it's like you're you're going to have, you know, okay, this, this company can do affirmative action if they want. Oh, look at that. They're less competent now. Their product sucks. Their services isn't so great. And they're not uh, doing, and they go into business. Like sucks to be them. Maybe they shouldn't do that. Uh, but instead we have the state imposing, thanks to, you know, civil rights in the 60s and everything that's come out of that um affirmative action which you cannot get away from legally that's why we have hr departments for example 
um, they have to do this. Uh, and the result, as we move further and further from reality, is that the systems are breaking down. But the state prevents that reality check from being uh, incorporated in, in uh, corporate policy. And things get worse and worse as a result. Like you, yeah. I mean, so I largely agree. <laughs> like, you know, we'd be much better off uh, just respecting property rights and um, rights to free association and and all of those things rather than trying to force people to adhere to uh, the preferences of some centralized bureaucracy. And the longer we continue to do that, the further from reality we get and the more everything breaks down. Put in a good word for distributism as a economic and political philosophy. And so uh, subsidiarity, yes. I, I think I, I think distributism is the economic philosophy and subsidiarity is the political philosophy. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, just breaking up concentrations of power is like what Grant said, nails it. You know, when you have the overarching nanny state controlling everything and, you know, now by the... The problem is, I mean, we had, we had, we kind of had that. And then uh, we lost that because those concentrations of power were able to develop. And then they were able to, like, basically impose um, that on all of these smaller concentrations of power right so like in a, in a practical practical sense right until the when was the briggs versus duke power it was like the 19 early 1970s i think and before that american corporations were able to um just do aptitude testing uh for their new hires and you know on the basis of that decide who to hire um so a very cheap competence focused means of recruitment and then Griggs versus Duke Power was like, oh, well, you know, that those aptitude tests are resulting in a disproportionate number of white guys being hired for this role. You can't have that disproportionate representation. That's that's evidence of racism. Um, and thus was born affirmative action. Right. Um, and everything that's come out of that. So, uh, yeah, those are, I think I are my... Those are my those are my concluding thoughts uh, on all of them. Yeah, that. Um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Harris. No, I was going to say that's good. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good place to wrap up the. Uh, All right, you guys. Well, thanks everybody for another pleasant discussion. Um, special thanks to Kanaz for joining us today. And uh, we'll see you guys all next time. Till next time. <laughs>